This morning, I'm excited to announce that we are beginning a new journey through a new book of the Bible. We finished uh, Philippians, so we're coming to a new book this morning. And you may have heard me say it before, but I do think the best way to teach the whole counsel of God is to preach consecutively through books, or at least consecutively through longer sections of the Bible. Now, we don't have to do that 100% of the time. We'll still have topical messages or doctrinal messages now and then, and that's fine, and those are helpful, I think, to us. But as our main staple, we're going to try to stick to working through a book of the Bible like this. So I'm excited this morning to start with you the gospel according to Mark. Let me tell you some interesting facts in just a minute about the book of Mark, but before that, let's just make clear what this new genre of scripture is. What is a gospel? Why do we say the gospel according to Mark? When we say Mark is one of the gospels, what do we mean, in other words? So there are four books at the beginning of our New Testament, which are narrative books that tell us about the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. In other words, these books are different than what we just finished in Philippians. This isn't a letter, per se, like Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, or, or one of the other epistles. A narrative book involves a narrator describing events, and they include dialogue and historical details about what happened and so forth. So the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they were each written by different men in their own, from their own perspectives, although each was still guided and inspired by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. So, as to be, so, so that as they wrote, what they were writing was inerrant and infallible and inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. I don't know how much you've thought about this, but uh, I'm very thankful for the wisdom of God in how he has revealed Jesus' life to us. We have four Gospels. Four. Not one, but four. Let me give you an illustration that came to mind when I was thinking about that. Most of us are familiar with Google Maps, right? On your phone, Need to find somewhere, put it in, it takes you there, or guides you there. There's something in Google Maps called Street View. Have you seen that on your computer? You can look up a particular place pretty much anywhere in the whole world, really, and you can click on Street View, and it'll show you a picture of the place that you've looked up from the perspective of the street right there in front. And it's helpful, I guess, because... When you pull up to a place that you're not familiar with, it helps to know, okay, I see what the building looks like now. I'll be looking for that, okay? And you can, what's also cool is you can click a little further down the road, and it'll take you to that perspective. Now maybe you're looking at the side of that building, or if it's in a big city, maybe you click on the street behind that place. Now you can see it from the back. The point is, you can see your destination from multiple angles. And none of those angles contradict one another. It's not like it's showing you different places or anything. It's just, it's showing you one place from multiple angles, right? 
And I use that illustration because that's really what the four Gospels are. There are these four different angles on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So as you read them, as we go through this, we'll see that they are complementary accounts. They're not contradictory accounts. They complement one another in that one writer may share more details on this particular event than the other gospel writer did, but they all complement one another. And so we have these four different perspectives on Jesus' life, and we can get just this more full picture of what he did and what he said and what he taught and so forth. So there's a little introduction to the Gospels in general. Now, what about Mark? What's some interesting facts about Mark as we um, make our way through? I'll just give you four different interesting facts about Mark. Number one, Mark is the shortest gospel of the four. Luke happens to be the longest. Mark is the shortest at 16 chapters. Mark has a total verse count of 673 verses. That might sound really long, but the average reader can read Mark from front to back in about an hour and a half. So that's interesting. It's the shortest of the four. Also, most scholars think that Mark was the earliest gospel, the first one written. Most scholars would date the writing of Mark in the early 50s A.D. Then most of the other Gospels or the other Gospels would be dated shortly thereafter. Another fact about Mark that's interesting is the other Gospels actually quote all but 31 verses of Mark. Mark is heavily quoted by the other Gospel writers. That's one thing that adds to the evidence that Mark was probably the earliest, by the way. So Matthew and Luke and John draw from Mark's gospel, but of course they add their own details that maybe Mark didn't include, or sometimes they include an event that Mark didn't talk about at all. Again, though, each writer, guided by the Holy Spirit, included what he thought was best to communicate the significance of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus to his intended audience, okay? Here's another interesting fact. Mark records more miracles than any other gospel. Mark is very interested in showing what Jesus did. Mark is trying to answer the question, who was this man, Jesus of Nazareth, and what did he do? So, although it doesn't include as much of Jesus' teaching as some of the other Gospels do. It does include a lot of Jesus' doings, okay? You could say it's the action version of Jesus' life. It's the action version. Um, That's not to say, of course, that Mark doesn't include any of Jesus' teaching. He includes quite a bit, but just a little bit less than the other Gospels do. This is a, a Gospel of doing. What is Jesus doing And one of Mark's favorite words, as you'll see if you read Mark, is immediately. Immediately they went here, or immediately they did this or that. He uses it a lot. One thing happens after another. It's a fast-moving narrative of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So, Now, who was the author of Mark? The text itself doesn't say. It's anonymous. 
doesn't directly state it in the text itself, in other words, but most scholars believe it was written by a man named John Mark. And that is attested by some of the early church writings. Now, who was John Mark? He was not one of the 12 apostles himself, but he was a close associate of the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul. And he's mentioned in other places in Scripture, like the book of Acts, for instance. John Mark would have been very familiar with Jesus, probably having met Jesus himself and been around him. But he definitely would have known what Jesus did and said, both by that personal experience with Jesus, as well as the eyewitness of Peter, his close friend, in large measure, because Peter was one of the inner circle. Right? Peter, James, and John. Now, another interesting fact, I don't have it listed on the screen here, but John Mark and the Apostle Paul, at one point, they had a sharp disagreement with one another. And it separated them for a while. But later, they did reunite. And what happened was Paul and Barnabas, they took Mark along with them on their first missionary journey However, Mark, on that missionary journey, for reasons unknown to us that are not recorded in Scripture, Mark left the work and didn't continue with them at that time. And when it came time for Paul and Barnabas to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark again, and Paul said, no, we're not taking Mark. He abandoned us the first time. So there was a sharp disagreement there, even between Paul and Barnabas on that fact. So Barnabas took Mark. And they went somewhere. And Paul took Silas, and they went somewhere different. So there was this mini falling out, if you will, but we do know that was not permanent. Thank the Lord. They didn't hold a grudge till their dying day against one another, right? These are godly men. And in 2 Timothy 4, we get a hint that their relationship there was healed, uh, 2 Timothy, just real quick, was written at the end of Paul's life. And at the end of his life, he's writing to Timothy, and he says this in 2 Timothy 4.11, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Isn't that beautiful? So these brothers in faith, they would not remain odd, at odds forever. They reunited. Paul says, Timothy, when you come, bring Mark. He's useful to me for ministry. That's encouraging. You could go on and on about the background of the book of Mark, but I think the best thing to do is just to jump in and begin to look at exactly what it says, right? Let the author reveal to us what he wants to reveal and progress us through the story. So you ready? Okay. Let's read together. You, you follow along with me as I read it. We're going to cover the first eight verses today. This is Mark 1, 1 through 8. It says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were, ba- and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do you get the sense that Mark just likes to hit the ground running? There's no talk of Jesus' birth. There's no genealogy tracing Jesus' ancestry back to someone. He jumps right in at the time where Jesus is beginning or about to begin his earthly ministry. And Mark is thought to be writing to Roman believers here, Gentiles, Roman believers. And they used to hold this concept of a herald, a forerunner. When Caesar would travel around, a herald would go ahead of him to wherever he was going and say, get ready, Caesar's coming to this place. Well, Mark says... We're not talking about Caesar. We're not talking about any other human ruler or king. I want to tell you about the most important person who has ever lived, indeed, who ever will live. His name is Jesus. And guess what? He had a forerunner too. He had a herald. Let me tell you how this whole thing began, he says. And he jumps right into the ministry of Jesus, not the birth or anything else, but the actual ministry of Jesus. What did he do? And as we look at our passage today, here's a little outline for you. I'm just going to highlight three important things. As with any scripture, it's a wealth of wisdom and knowledge to try to plumb the depths, but we're just going to focus on three things. Here's the three things we're focusing on. The Messiah, the messenger, and the message. The Messiah, the messenger, and the message. So let's talk about the first one. Number one, the Messiah. Uh, verse 1, you'll notice, especially if you're some kind of a grammar nerd, it doesn't have a verb. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What does that sound like? It's not a complete sentence or a complete thought per se, but it's like a title. It's a description. It's a summary. We call this book the gospel according to Mark, but if we used Mark, Mark's exact words, maybe we would call it the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the reason why my first point here is worded the Messiah is because that is the word that Mark uses here for Jesus. He calls him the Christ. Sometimes when we use the phrase, the two words together, Jesus Christ, it becomes, maybe we don't think about what we're saying. It becomes uh, just, just memory, just memorization. 
Or maybe we think, you know, at first when we, when we didn't know much about Jesus, maybe we thought that was his last name or something. Jesus Christ. But the word Christ means anointed one or Messiah. So right here in the first line, Mark is not playing around, is he? He builds on the story of the Old Testament. And all through the Old Testament, what do you have? You have the prophecies and the promises of a coming Messiah who's going to save his people, right? So if you were a Jew living in the Old Testament era, you were very aware of and looking forward to this coming Messiah, but you wouldn't know his name. The Old Testament doesn't say his name is Jesus. But Mark tells us in the very first line of his gospel, hey, y'all, his name is Jesus. The Messiah is Jesus. Another thing he doesn't beat around the bush about is Jesus' deity. Right in the first line, Jesus Christ, the what? Son of God. Wow. Mark just hits us with it right at the beginning. Mark says, what I'm writing to you is the beginning of the gospel, which that's a word that means good news. So here's the beginning of the good news from God. I've got good news from God. Here's the beginning of it. And this good news is for all mankind, and it's about a person. His name is Jesus. He's the Messiah, and he's also the Son of God. So that wasn't a claim that later Christians came up with, by the way. If you read some textual critics on Christianity or the Bible, may, they may bring up, well, Christians didn't always believe that Jesus was the Son of God. That came in the year 325 at the Council of Nicaea, they'll say. And the Emperor Constantine just said, let's start calling Jesus God. That's not what happened. Go back to the source. This is Mark, written in the 50s. He says he's the son of God. That wasn't a council that determined all of a sudden we're going to start calling Jesus God. It's, it's, he, they were counteracting heresies that were saying Jesus wasn't God. So they said, let's have a council and settle this. Let's look at the scriptures. Jesus is God. They weren't coming up with that out of anywhere. They were just confirming what the scripture already said. So right at the earliest gospel, in the very first line of the gospel, we have a statement about the deity of Jesus. I love that. By the way, it's not a, a one-off line like, oh, there it is, and Mark won't really talk about that again. We'll see it come to the forefront at other times in Mark's gospel as well, whether it be through something Jesus does that you say, Wait a minute, no human can do that. Whether it's through something he does or something that Jesus directly says about himself, even in Mark. So we'll see that come up later. And I'm reminded of something right here. We have the privilege, don't we, of, of hindsight. We've read the whole New Testament. Hopefully you've read the whole New Testament. Hopefully everybody in here has read their Bible all the way through. I don't know if you've done that before, but... Hopefully you've read the whole New Testament. You know something of who Jesus is. 
And in that way, we live in a privileged era, don't we? To have the whole New Testament. Just imagine yourself for a moment. You're an early Christian in Rome. And you're hearing the book of Mark read to you for the very first time. They would have probably met underground because they were heavily persecuted, the Christians were. Um, They would have met actually in the catacombs, which is basically a Roman underground cemetery with dead bodies down there. That's what they met. They had to hide. And here's what the Romans thought of them. Can you imagine? This is what they thought of Christians at the time. They considered Christians to be atheists. You're like, what? They believed they were atheists because they believed in just one God and not the plethora of Roman gods. Oh, you're a Christian. You're one of those atheists. That's what they thought. And maybe these tired, persecuted, underground believers would be wondering, is this really worth it? We're having to have church down here in a graveyard. We're having to watch what we say at every turn. We're having to hide everything. We're being persecuted. Some of us are being killed. Have we really believed correctly about Jesus? Are we, are we right about him? Let's rethink this. Maybe we're not. Maybe he's not who we thought he was. Maybe that's some of the thoughts that were going through their minds. And then... Can you imagine they get the book of Mark and they hear the first line, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That might infuse a persecuted believer with some new encouragement and strength, wouldn't it? It infuses me right now and I'm not persecuted at all. It should do that for us. Jesus is the promised one, the very son of God. So plainly stated right up front by our brother Mark here. So if that line was basically a title or or a summary or a description of Mark, well, where does Mark technically go first then? Well, we read about a messenger, number two. The messenger. So if the first line is the title, or like I said, kind of a summary or description, then what's the actual first line of the body of Mark's gospel? It's, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So Mark says, this gospel didn't come out of the blue. This gospel has been promised long ago. By the prophets. And he quotes from this well-known, probably the most well-known prophet, Isaiah, who wrote hundreds of years prior to this. And actually, if you examine this particular quote, it's not just from Isaiah. It's a composite quote of several prophets. But he just says it's from Isaiah, meaning it's probably the most prominent prophet within the quote. But it's actually from Exodus 23, 20. Malachi 3 and 4, and Isaiah 40, verse 3, kind of mashed together. So let's, let's, let's talk about that for a second. The Exodus passage is about God 
sending a messenger ahead of his people to bring them into the promised land. That's what that one's talking about. And then the Malachi passage prophesies about this messenger who was going to be this Elijah-type figure who was going to come and prepare Israel for the coming of the Lord. And then the Isaiah passage refers to making the Lord's path straight, fill in the potholes, cut down the hills, prepare, he's coming, the king is coming. And Mark applies those things very clearly to Jesus. And to me, it's, it's awesome and interesting, no doubt, when you think about the Malachi passage, for instance. How does the Old Testament end compared with how this gospel begins? That's what I'm talking about. Malachi is the very last prophet of the Old Testament, and Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And at the very end of Malachi, it says this. These are the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. If you want to turn there, great. If you don't, I'm going to read it. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And with that, boom, the Old Testament ends. So the Old Testament ends saying the day of the Lord is coming. But guess what? Elijah is going to come before that. And he will turn people's hearts to the Lord. And with that last sentence of the book of Malachi, there's this period of about 400 years where there's no recorded prophet at all. 400 years. 400 silent years, we might call them. And then... Who pops up out in the wilderness after 400 years after Malachi just said, I'm going to send you Elijah before the Lord comes? He pops up out in the wilderness, this guy named John. We call him John the Baptist because he baptized people. John the Baptizer, we could call him. And so to me, it's just striking how direct Mark is. The Old Testament ends with the promise to send a messenger right before the Lord comes. And the beginning of Mark says, verse 4, John appeared. (laughs) John was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies about a messenger in the wilderness that would prepare the way for the Lord's coming. He was the Elijah figure that Malachi talked about. And Jesus actually confirmed that, by the way, in We'll get to it later. It's in the ninth chapter of Mark. Listen to what he said. If you want to jot this down and look it up later. This is what Jesus said in the ninth chapter, verses 11 to 13. It says, And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? They're talking about Malachi. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? It's almost like 
This is, this is a side note, but it's almost like Jesus is slipping this, this one in there too. Hey, you know how you miss Malachi? You also miss the part about the Messiah suffering, but we won't talk about that right now. He says, but I tell you, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And if that's not clear enough for you, Matthew's gospel adds this little note. Matthew 17, 13. Right after Jesus says that, it says, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Mark is saying, here is the promised messenger. Isaiah and Malachi told you about him. Here he is. Here's your Elijah. And what's exciting about that is if, if the messenger's here, you know who's coming next, right? The king, the Lord. If the herald comes to town, you know the king is right behind him, right? Amazing. Now, what was this man John like? Let's just talk about that briefly. Was he a cultured individual? (laughs) Was he a wealthy man? No. Was he an established member of the religious elite? Negative. This man wore camel's hair and a leather belt, and he ate locusts. Bugs and wild honey. He's quite a bit different, I'd say, than a scribe or a Pharisee or any religious leader of that day. Those guys lived in their plush houses in Jerusalem, perhaps. John was out in the wilderness eating bugs and honey. And it's interesting to me the symbolism that's here. What was God saying by sending this herald slash messenger to his people who was outside the city, the holy city, and outside the normal bounds of religious life in Judaism? He's saying, the way of salvation isn't the way you think. It's outside what you would call normal if we're talking about Judaism, right? Somebody might have said, okay, Lord, which priest will tell us the right way? What part of the holy city do I go to? Which synagogue is he teaching in? God says he's not in the city at all. He's not a priest at all. And you won't find him in a synagogue. He's down by the river, out in the wilderness, He's a guy who you weren't exactly expecting, but when you see him, if you know your scriptures well, it'll remind you of somebody. He wore the same clothing as Elijah did, by the way. And another thing, what was up with that whole wilderness thing? You remember when God led Israel into the promised land, Out of wandering in the wilderness after 40 years, they crossed the what? They crossed the Jordan River, and they entered it. And now, where does the Messiah's herald pop up? Out in the wilderness at the Jordan River. And what was Jesus coming to do? He was coming to lead us into the real promised land, heaven. 
So there's some wonderful parallels, really, between John and where he's located and what he's saying and all that. So there's the messenger, just a little bit about him. Now, what about number three, the message? We've seen what John the Baptist was. He was a forerunner or herald of the Lord. We saw what he wore. We read about what he ate. What was his message, though? Mark says in verse 5, Tons of people were coming out to hear John. What was he saying? Interestingly, his message wasn't what they were expecting either. First of all, it was a message of repentance. Verse 4. Verse 4 says he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The baptism that John was carrying out was a symbol of repentance in the heart. So essentially, John was out there reminding people, in case you forgot you're a sinner before God, you need to repent. And you need to turn to this coming one. I'm here to tell you about him. We'll see that later. Repent of your sins You need God's forgiveness. Turn from your sin and look for the Messiah. And this baptism wasn't really a typical thing that a Jew would do. They didn't baptize people. They would baptize proselytes who were Gentiles who converted to Judaism. They would do that. But the Jews themselves, they would not need baptism. They would not see themselves as needing baptism. That wasn't a practice that they were used to. They thought themselves to be clean already, right? They were God's people. But here comes John saying, repent and be baptized. Even you Jews. You might think you don't need cleansing, but you do. Everyone does. And we kind of get hints of this Jewish attitude as well from the religious leaders. Some of them would come out to check John's teaching out. And in Matthew's gospel, it says John told him, Don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God's able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. That's nothing to God. What your ethnicity is, you need to repent of your sin. Don't put any stock there, in here, as if God is impressed. He'll make you out of that rock right there. Repent and participate in this outward sign of baptism that would signify to everybody else that you saw yourself as a sinner before God and that you've repented and you're waiting on his Messiah to come. So that's what John was preaching out there, a message of repentance. Second of all, he was preaching about the coming of the Messiah. Make no mistake about that one. Look at verse 7. And eight, really. It says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he, who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, he's definitely pointing to a greater person who was coming after him. John was saying the whole time, 
I'm not the one. I'm the forerunner of this guy that's coming. In John, in John's gospel, right, right near the beginning, John 1, 8 and 9 says, John was not that light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So John the Apostle, speaking of John the Baptist, is saying John wasn't the light, but he was coming to prepare the way for that light. The light is Jesus. So the main word that Mark wanted to record of John's message, other gospel writers record other parts that he said, for instance, like I quoted a while ago, to the Pharisees. John said some things to the Roman soldiers at one time. But Mark, what he wants to record is this. There is one coming who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I'm here baptizing you with water as you repent of your sins and you prepare for his coming. But when he comes, he's going to give you the Holy Spirit and your entire being is going to be transformed. And this person to come, John says, I don't know if I've plumbed the depths of this in our heart. This is how humble we ought to be before the Lord Jesus' majesty. He says, he is so far above me, mightier than I. That word there means he's more authoritative than I. I'm a peon, if you allow me to use that word. He's the master. I'm not even worthy, he says, to untie the man's sandals. Now, that was a slave's job at this time in history. The master would come home. The slave would untie the sandals. John says, I'm not even worthy to be this man's slave. John wasn't seeking his own fame, was he? He wasn't seeking his own glory. He was pointing to Jesus. And he said in John 3, he must increase and I must decrease. That is John's attitude. And we see it even in Mark. That's what Mark wants to tell us about John's message. So, what do we take away from all this? You can come up with things as you read and you study and you think and you meditate. You'll come up with more than what I'm about to say. God's Spirit lives in you if you're a Christian. He will show you how this affects your life and the many different facets that these, these truths touch. But I'll just give you four general ones, okay? Number one, God keeps his promises. There was those 400 silent years, right? No prophets, nobody proclaiming the word of the Lord. It would have been very easy to begin to doubt the Lord's promises. The psalmist in Psalm 42 talks about people antagonizing him, saying, Where is your God? Psalm 42, 3. And I'm sure there were many who made fun of the Israelite people. The Romans did, no doubt, all the time. They would make fun of them for their looking for this Messiah guy. Where is he? They might say, where's your God? He must have forgotten about you, little people. Move out of my way. And then all of a sudden, there's John the Baptist, Elijah. The Elijah figure, 
proclaiming this message, hey, there's somebody coming. How might that have revived the spirits of the ones looking for the Messiah? That must have rejuvenated them. I can't imagine. Maybe that was one thing they had to repent of when they went out to John. Lord, I repent of my doubt. I thought it would never happen, but it seems like you're about to come because I'm hearing this man chomping on the locusts, eating some honey, looking like Elijah, telling me the Messiah's coming. I'm here for it, Lord. So, in our own life, he's working. He might seem silent sometimes. He's working. He's orchestrating. He's sovereignly guiding all circumstances. And he's never, not once, broken a promise. And he's not going to break that streak in your life. And there's still promises yet to be fulfilled at the end of the age, isn't it? We're still looking for some of them. Like the second coming, right? But the Lord's going to keep every last one of his promises. Just think how your heart will be revived when Jesus finally comes back. Didn't think it was going to happen, Lord. It happened. Don't lose hope. God keeps his promises. Number two takeaway. The Christian message, the message from God, the gospel, is one of repentance. The message from the very beginning had to do with repenting of sin. I think, I try to listen to a lot of pastors preaching because I need food for my own soul. And I listen to good ones, praise God, there's so many good ones. But there are lots of preachers that you won't hear talk about repentance. I think we need a revival of preaching on repentance. Those who receive the grace of God and the promises of God are the ones who repent of their sin and turn to Him. God is merciful, but not to everyone. He is merciful to the repentant. And if the message is one of repentance, then that one word tells us a lot. It implies that we are sinners if we need to repent, right? If we need to repent, then we're, then we're acknowledging through our repentance that we are in a state of sin that we need to turn from. That's what repentance is. We're not to celebrate it. We're not to try to call it something less than it is. Sin kills. Repentance brings forgiveness. That's John's message. That's Jesus' message. We'll see it just later on in this chapter. Jesus comes out preaching, guns blazing, repent. That was the apostles' message. And that's our message too, right? And the reason we got to talk about sin and we got to remind ourselves about sin and we have to talk of others or talk to others about our fallen world and sin in our hearts, all of us, is because until we realize that we're sinners and until we really realize how sinful we are, we'll never see the need to repent. We'll never see the need for salvation. Saved? Saved from what? 
And in, and in that one word, repentance, we see the doctrine of sin and the way to escape the punishment, repentance. I wonder if you've repented of your sin this morning. In a crowd even this size, I know we're a small church, but I bet you there's, I hope not, by God's grace I hope not, but there may be somebody here that is not saved. Have you repented of your sin? That means you turn away from your sin and you turn to Jesus. It's like one motion. It's not two things. You turn away from sin to Jesus. I read about a group of children uh, who were asked about repentance one time. And one child said, it means being sorry for your sin. That's a good answer in, in some ways. But then one little girl raised her hand, and she said, she defined it a little bit better. She said, it's being sorry enough to quit. (laughs) She hit the nail on the head. Repenting comes from wanting forgiveness and salvation and Jesus himself more than your sin. If you want your sin more than Jesus, you won't repent. If you want Jesus and forgiveness more than your sin, you'll repent. And the beautiful thing is that if anyone in this room or anyone listening to me, the sound of my voice, if anyone repents of their sin and turns to Christ, God washes them, cleanses them, cleanses them, makes them new. And that salvation can be yours today if it's not already. But make no mistake about it. It involves repentance, acknowledging your sin to God and wanting to be done with it. So brothers and sisters, here's one thing we can do. Make this part of your evangelism because it's part of the gospel. If we just tell people what Jesus did... We're sharing some of the good news, but we're not calling for the response that God calls people to give. They must repent and believe. And true repentance, as John would say in another gospel, it will result in a change of direction that bears witness. It bears fruit of repentance. You know somebody really repented when they don't keep doing that thing again over and over and over. It may be something they struggle with till their dying day, but they're not acquiescing to it and hugging it. They are fighting it with the sword of the Spirit. Number three takeaway. God's messengers don't need to strive to be quote-unquote normal. Was John normal? (laughs) Am I telling you to go down to the Halloween costume place and buy some camel hair? No, not at all. But we get so caught up in, I I don't want to be that weirdo Christian guy. Even by the standards of his day, John the Baptist was kind of odd. It wasn't like everybody was eating bugs and honey and living in the desert. He was odd. So, Christian brother, sister, do you find yourself wanting to be viewed as normal to people? 
Are you worried that somebody might think you're kind of odd if you speak of Jesus? Are you worried that you might seem kind of awkward? We all struggle with that to a certain extent if we're honest, right? Who has felt that before? Some of you are honest and some of you are not honest. We've all struggled with that. We've all struggled with that. Not wanting to be that guy. Not wanting to bring up something that's kind of an awkward transition. How am I going to... I don't want to seem weird to this person. We all struggle with that. But can we just call it what it is? That is the fear of man. That is sinful of us. I'm not talking to you only. I'm talking to me. That is sinful. The Bible says the fear of man lays a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Trust in the Lord and open your mouth. That's Proverbs 29, 25, by the way. We ought to want to please God rather than any man or woman. By the way, would you pray for me in your private prayer time? Because it's easy for a pastor to try to please men and women. As I preach week in and week out, I don't want to worry myself with pleasing man but pleasing God. I'm not going to have to answer to any man or woman one day. I'm going to answer to God. I take that very seriously. I want to be helpful to men and women. I want to be helpful and edifying to God's church, but ultimately I'm going to answer to Him. I want to be faithful. So pray for me that I would not have the fear of man in my heart. And I'll pray for you to do the same. I'll be praying that we won't feel like we have to keep up some appearance or look especially intelligent to people. I pray that we'll just be faithful messengers of God's message. So am I saying just go out and try to be weird? No. I'm just saying if we put our reputations first and we really are intimidated by what people think of us, we'll not do what John did. We'll just keep our mouth shut. We'll play it safe. And Satan is very happy when Christians keep their mouth shut. There's things we can say that maybe we should keep our mouth shut. But there's other things that ought to open our mouths wide. And one is the gospel. May we be faithful messengers of God's message. And not worry about whatever the world says is normal. Be a John the Baptist. And don't be ashamed. Okay? Number four, this is the last one for today. Jesus is the exalted king. John, we we already hinted at this. John said he wasn't even worthy to be his slave. That communicates something to us, as I said earlier, about how humble we should feel before him. Jesus is the king, but I am not. He's got the whole world in his hands, the little song says. I do not. I might think that I know everything about a given situation, especially if it's some situation that I am in. I might feel like I'm qualified to counsel God a little bit about this. It's my situation, Lord. I think I know what's best for me. He's omniscient. I am not. I might think I'm invaluable to the cause of the Lord. I am not. I am dispensable. 
I am expendable. All of us are. I'm an extra in the drama of the Lord. I'm not worthy to even be associated with him. But God has chosen a people and saved them. And Hebrews 2, maybe we should preach on that sometime. Hebrews 2 said, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. I'm so far beneath him, but he calls me his brother. And he's not ashamed to do it. Can you think of any better news, by the way, than the exalted king of the universe has come and he lived and he died to secure our salvation through the active and passive obedience of Christ like we looked at last week. And by repenting of our sins and turning to him, we can be forgiven of every, every sin that we've ever committed or ever will commit. Can you think of any news better than that? That's the gospel. <laughs> Matt Smethers, the guy that wrote the book that we passed out two copies of, he says it this way in that book at one time. The lawmaker became the law keeper and died in the place of lawbreakers. That's it. That's what God has done through Jesus. And those who have turned from their sin and come to Christ in faith are viewed by God now as if we had done nothing to offend him and done everything to please him. That's how he views us in Christ. Amazing. <laughs> so as we see these hints of this coming king in the opening of Mark, I hope we're encouraged just reading it. As we see the faithfulness of the messenger, John, as he's opening his mouth, proclaiming without fear at all God's message, may we believe the message ourselves and subsequently go out and proclaim the message of repentance and forgiveness in Christ ourselves. Amen? I can't wait to look at more of this book of Mark with you in the coming weeks, but for now, let's pray. We'll sing a song together in just a moment, and then we'll part ways for now. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your promised king that you sent over 2,000 years ago. We thank you that you've granted us repentance and faith to believe in him. And we thank you that you've given us the promised Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to be faithful heralds of your gospel, just like John the Baptist was. May we have the same view of Jesus as John did, utterly humbled before his majesty. And help us not to doubt you, to doubt your promises, Lord. Even when it seems like you're silent, help us not to doubt. Increase our faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.